Hi, this is Mo. And this is Sarah, and you're listening to the podcast Bird Shit. We started this podcast to share our love of birding with other enthusiastic birders in the world. Hi, everyone. Today we have another exciting interview on Bird Shit Podcast, and we will be talking with Susie Gilbert. So Susie, from the time she was a kid, always had a rescue Jones, whether it was stray dogs, unmanageable horses, or unwanted parrots. Who doesn't want a parrot? And when she was in her early 30s, Susie moved from Manhattan to the New York Hudson Valley, where she checked out a raptor center and saw a red-tailed hawk, which was her spark bird, and she fell madly in love and worked there for 11 years. While there, Susie wrote a children's book called Hawk Hill, published by Chronicle Books. Later, when her kids were seven and eight, she decided to build two flight cages in her yard and start a very small bird rehab center. This lasted about five minutes, she said, (laughs) and she wrote a memoir about trying and failing to balance raising her two kids while running a full-time, all-species wild bird hospital out of her house. And this book was called Fly Away, How a Wild Bird Rehabber Sought Adventure and Found Her Wings, published by HarperCollins. Eventually, she closed that down, though, so she could write full-time, although she still does rescues. Susie wrote all kinds of columns and articles, and she was the lone bird rehabber on the great birding blog site 10,000 Birds. To top it all off, Susie just finished her first novel, Unflappable, which is what we'd like to talk with her today. Susie, welcome to Bird Shit. I am so happy to be on Bird Shit. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and rather than have it be on you. I've had that a lot. <laughs> yes. Well, we are so excited to have you here. I know you sent us an email a long time ago, and now we've finally been able to sync everything up and be able to get you on the show. We obviously, you know, learned a lot about you before doing this interview, and you have done so many things. So maybe just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became a wildlife rehabilitator? So um, I grew up in Oyster Bay on Long Island, New York. Nice childhood, horses, dogs, land, woods, you know, running out in the woods before people thought it was dangerous. I wasn't going to go to college. I was going to be a horse trainer. And my parents said, oh, no, you're not. And so off I went to college. And then that didn't work. So I went to another college and that didn't work. And I, uh, I took time off and I traveled around. I had lots of different jobs. Finally, I did go back. I went back to college. I got, I got a degree in writing just because I couldn't think of anything else to major in. I just, I didn't know what to major in. But when I got into wildlife was when I moved out of New York City and I moved to the Hudson Valley and someone said, oh, you're into animals. You should check out the Hudson Valley Raptor Center. Because I always through my life, I had this sort of rescue Jones. I'd rescue stray dogs or, you know, horses that were unmanageable or parrots that people didn't want. And I just couldn't help it. You know, I would, I would rescue them and then find them good homes. And so I went up to the Hudson Valley Raptor Center and I think that was my spark bird. You know, I saw this red-tailed hawk and, ah, he was just, he was so gorgeous and, and just so beautiful and and lethal and big and you know I just I just and I you know it's not I loved all birds but I had never seen a bird of prey close up so I worked there for 11 years and they just sucked me right in <laughs> uh, while I was there I started writing their newsletter and they didn't have one and I found that every bird that came in had this really cool story how they were injured what kind of bird they were 
what their personalities were like. People think birds are just like these little flying robots and they're, you know, they're not. Every bird has a different personality, even under incredible duress, like being in captivity and being injured, you know, it still comes out. So I could write these little stories for the newsletter, meaning like two or three paragraphs. It was great because I found out I could make people laugh. I could make them feel warm and fuzzy. I could make them weep. I could, and then they would like put down the newsletter and reach for their checkbook and write the Raptor Center a check. Words are powerful. Hey, it was really mm -hmm. good. So that's where I, I really got started in my environmental angle. That's awesome. Eventually, I, um, I left the Raptor Center and I set up my own place at home. I was only going to do adult songbirds that needed a flight cage because there were songbird rehabbers around, but none of them had a big flight cage where the birds could, if they were young, learn to fly again, or if they were injured, regain their wings. So I built this flight cage and thought, well, this is good. You know, my kids are seven and eight and I can do the, the bird thing and I can do the kid thing and, and I can manage it. And as any rehabber will tell you, any plan you make lasts five minutes. <laughs> you know, it was like this bird bomb went off. I just, you know, I was, before I knew it, I was just inundated. So when I decided to write this memoir about trying futilely trying to juggle kids and wildlife. It was a memoir. I didn't know how to write that either, but you know, you just try and do it. Yeah. The words come and it all works out. <laughs> so you mentioned that you now live in New York Hudson Valley, so you must get a wide variety of birds flying through. Do you want to share with us some of your most memorable wild bird rehab stories? I can tell you one story that will show you so many different things of what happens to wildlife rehabbers. It was 2001, and it was maybe a month, month and a half after 9-11. I am in the Hudson Valley. I'm about 14 miles north of Indian Point, which is a nuclear power plant. After 9-11, everybody was really nervous that this was going to be another target. So people were edgy, and it was locked down. And, and one afternoon, my kids came home from school, and I had a call from a man who said, ma'am. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> and he goes, we have an injured peregrine falcon, and he's in a box. Can you come and get him? And it just happened to be, you know, one of those times that I could do it. I could sort of, I, I wasn't in the middle of something. I could go and get this bird. And I asked my kids if they wanted to come. My daughter was busy, but my son said, sure, I'll come. On the way down, he and I had this whole conversation about what kind of bird it could be. Because I can't tell you how many times people have called me and said, I've got an injured peregrine falcon. And either it's a pigeon or <laughs> it's a robin. One time it was a thrasher. That was good. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. Occasionally it's actually a raptor, but it's a Sharpie or a Cooper's hawk. You know, I've had yeah. so many calls for peregrine falcons. Then they're never a peregrine falcon. <laughs> so we're driving down and my son and I are having this whole conversation. Like he said, I know it's a cassowary. And I said, <laughs> I said, no, it's a sulfur crested cockatoo. And we went back and forth and back and forth on what it would be. We finally get to Indian Point and we turn in the driveway and there's a guard booth there. And there are six men in black 
with machine guns. And they all turn and look at the car. I hit the brakes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And my son goes, Mom, this is so awesome. (laughs) 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 And the guy, the, the main guy in the booth is gesturing me to come, you know, come forward. So I pull up and he goes, can I help you? And I said, you know, everyone's glaring at us. And I said, I'm here for the bird. And they all went, oh, the bird. Oh, (laughs) and they put their guns back and they're like, you know, slapping each other on the shoulder. They're like, oh, she's here for the bird, the bird, you know, that's a really cool bird. (laughs) (laughs) And so my son is going, mom, mom, can you get them to shoot that car over there? Stop it, stop it. So uh, one of the guys pulls a box out of the guard tower and he goes in the back of my Jeep and opens the back and puts the box in. And I don't even see the bird because it's all, you know, it's taped. There's air holes and everything. It's Mm -hmm. very proper. And, And he puts it in and he closes the back of my Jeep. And then he like, you know, smacks it and says like, go. <laughs> and the guard go, he goes, you can turn around and leave now. And he said, good luck with the bird. So we drove to a vet. Veterinarians and rehabilitators have to work together. And if you don't, if you're a rehabber and you don't have a vet, you just, you can't do it because there's so many injuries that we're not veterinarians. You know, we saw actually some veterinarians are rehabilitators as well, but honestly, there aren't enough hours in the day. So, um, I have worked with these wonderful vets. Like the one, the one I was heading for is Wendy Westrom, who is retired now. But you know, she was awesome. And their vets at Croton Animal Hospital were just fabulous. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't charge me or they'd just charge me as little as possible. Anyway, so I went into, my son and I took this box into Dr. Westrom's office. She goes, oh, is this the peregrine falcon with like big air quotes? You know, and everyone in the office is going, oh, it's the peregrine falcon. (laughs) (laughs) So we go into her office and we shut the door. My son and Dr. Westrom and I are, you know, we open up the box and look inside. And Mac, my son says, whoa, it's a peregrine falcon. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, it was just, we were so shocked. Beautiful, juvenile. And what had happened, we figured, was that, you know, maybe he got caught in a downdraft and hit a bridge or hit Mm. something, hit a building. I mean, who knows? But his beak from the nares, you know, from the top of his beak all the way to the bottom was split in half. Oh, my God. Yeah. And even worse than that was it had probably happened, you know, days and days before, and he was starving. Oh, he was so emaciated that Wendy, the doctor, said uh, he's, he wouldn't have made it through the night. She said, I can't guarantee he's going to make it through the night. So she said, you're going to have to tube him every two hours, <laughs> which means tubing, you have to you know, take the bird, you put a tube down his throat with liquid protein, because if you feed a starving bird a piece of meat, it will kill them. They need this easily digested protein. So she said, you know, good luck. And I went home and I tubed this bird every two hours around the clock. And, you know, luckily he was so down, it's not like he's going to put up a fight. So I would just wrap him in a towel, like a papoose, and put the tube down and start 
this went on for days. And, you know, I think the second day, maybe I made it every three hours and then every four hours. And finally, three or four days later, he was stable. I was not, but, <laughs> but he, he was stable and he was okay and perching. I had a friend, Paul Kupchak, who used to work. He's, the, he's retired now, but he used to be the head of the wildlife program at Green Chimney School in Brewster. And Paul, it was my, like my go-to guy. I would call him up all the time and say, Paul, this bird is going to die. And he'd say, no, it's not. It's going to be fine. And he would just talk me off the ledge because he was so calm. So I told him this whole story. And then he said, oh, man, that's great. I'm so glad you got him up. So did you call Fish and Wildlife? And I went, oh, I forgot. And he goes, ooh, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why do you have to call Fish and Wildlife? This is the thing. It's like peregrines were endangered species then. <gasps> and according to your life, you know, these are all birds protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. According to your Fish and Wildlife license, which is really hard to get, and, you know, you have to follow the rules. According to them, you need to call them within 48 hours if you get an endangered species in. Oh, wow. If it's an endangered species, every bird is just it's so important. So you yeah. really need to let them know. And they want to check up on you and make sure that you're qualified for this, that you're not going to kill the bird. So I said, okay, I'm going to call them. And Paul, bless his heart, said, listen, do not be a wise ass. Whatever she says to you, do not say anything back to her because she will pull your license. And I said, okay, thanks. Subtle, Paul, subtle. Hey, fair warning. <laughs> <laughs> Such fair warning. So I called her up and I told the, the woman who was in charge of my division at Fish and Wildlife, I told her the story and she read me the riot act. And, you know, instead of doing what I would normally do, which is say, you know, yeah, I didn't call you because I was too busy trying to keep the bird from dying. You know, instead of that, I said, mm -hmm. I'm really sorry. And here's the game plan. Here's what we're going to do. I'll send you pictures. And, and it was okay. So what happened with the bird, to wrap this up, when the peregrine was well enough to have surgery and go under anesthesia, Wendy put the bird out and drilled a hole through the beak because this is all dead. It's all dead tissue inserted a wire, folded the wire up and twisted it so the two sides of the broken beak came together. And then she snipped off the wire and covered the whole thing with epoxy. So that way he had a temporary functioning beak and he could pick up his own food. Because before I would have to feed him with tweezers. You know, even when he was better, I'd have to, but he could eat by himself. And the thing is, he had hit so hard that the growth plate behind the beak was damaged. Beaks are like fingernails, they're keratin. And so the, the question was whether the growth plate had been so damaged that it wouldn't grow anymore or whether it could regenerate. So for a while, you know, it was good for a while he had, you know, he had this beak that he could use. And then it was just a question of time. He ended up staying with me for another month or so. And then he went to a flight cage at Paul's and... You know, I wish I could say that it grew back and he was released and, you know, went off in, into the sky again, but it never grew back. So he ended up going to a really good falconer and he became a, a falconry bird and a, 
he'd go to fairs and you know, he was so young when he came in that he was used to people. I mean, that still seems like a good life to educate yeah. people about the species, especially an endangered one at that time. So exactly. that's way better than the worst alternative, which I don't even want to talk about because it's so oh. sad. But yeah. yeah <laughs> <right>. <laughs> don't be sad. No. <laughs> so yeah, it was quite a saga, but they can end well in different ways. Wow. I don't know. I feel like I entered a trance there just listening to that story. Because <laughs> I was like, I know. I, that's all I want now. I'm like, screw the questions. Let's just do these rehab stories. That's all I want. Ah, there's a million of them. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah, after yeah. years of that. I mean, so that falcon obviously must have hit something, damaged beak, yeah. etc. cetera. Um, so you've, I can't even imagine all the different types of injuries you've seen to such a wide variety of birds. But if you could think of like, a few things that maybe our listeners could do to make the world safer for birds or even other wildlife, what would be your recommendations? I would say, okay, one, keep your cats inside. Hell yeah. I'm going to get hate mail for this, but I don't care. Not from our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but they'll find me. They'll find me and hunt me down. Yeah, the cats. I mean, cats, I can't tell you, can't tell you how many birds I've gotten. And, you know, people would say if, if someone found a, you know, their cat brings in a bird and then they ask around, what do I do? My local residents around me would say, you can take him to Susie, but she's going to rip you a new one, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I did. Anyway, preaching to the choir, you know, decals on your windows. That's a big mm-hmm. thing. Window strikes are big. I'm wondering, could I put like decals of birds on my window like <laughs> decorative decals of birds on my window to prevent birds from hitting it yes you can yeah all right that's what i'm gonna do new new life goal <laughs> yes you can you can get hawk decals which are even better because oh, then they're they're really Sarah. cool and the Dude. birds not only see the glittery thing on the window but they see it's a hawk silhouette and they're like you know with the brakes yeah. it's easy to find just google it the other thing which you know again the dicey topic is vote. There has never, ever been an administration Mm. as anti-environment as the one we have. This is nuts. Yeah. You know, all the work that environmentalists have been doing for so many years, just bang, 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 down they go. Just vote. Get them out. Yeah. I actually had a dream last night that I was like, having a, a verbal argument with Donald Trump. And I was like, what's the point? This isn't going to go anywhere. Like, even in my dream, I knew it was useless. But I was like, this is so useless. But I just want to like, <laughs> I mean, especially with everything oh. about the Migratory Bird Act and everything that's happening now, too. Oh, it's just yeah. like, come on. Like, literally, who does this benefit in any way? You know who it benefits? It benefits the big corporations. Business. Yeah. Yep, just more money in everyone's pocket. I'm just going to start vandalizing all those businesses <laughs> by putting hawk decals on all their windows. <laughs> Screw you guys. Now you have to protect birds. We can get a posse. Yep, we're just going to start making like giant bird shit window decals. With all the bird shit around, we could just get some and keep throwing it at the windows. Great idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so we're going to shift gears yes. a little bit just like you did a few years back, and you added author to your resume. So some of our listeners may know you from your memoir, Fly Away, How a Wild Bird Rehabber Sought Adventure and Found Her Wings. So what inspired you to pick up a pen and share your story? I wrote eight short stories and a prologue and an epilogue, and I just thought that maybe I could sell it and make a little money for my bird operation. That was my goal, is I just wanted to get some more funding. I really didn't think it would you know, go that far, 
I sent uh, the story around to, I don't know, four or five agents. And one of them happened to be a birder, someone who's really into birds, Russell Galen. And he also was this mega agent. I sent it to him and he wrote me back this wonderful long email. And he said, these stories are great. I love this. He said, but short stories don't sell. If you can make this into a longer book, like a whole book, I can sell this and I can get you a good advance. Suddenly I'm thinking, wow, you mean I could make some real money with this? Not only could I finance my bird operation, but there were other things that I would like to do if I had some money. So I turned it into a book. And, you know, again, really not expecting that much. And Russ sent it out to a bunch of editors and it just turned into this feeding frenzy. It was so surprising. There were all these editors wanted it and Russ set set up an auction. So there were seven publishers bidding against each other. Damn, that's incredibly powerful. That's so cool. (laughs) I know. And I was such a deer in the headlights. And the day of the auction, as it turns out, I had all these birds that I had to deliver to different rehabbers or to a vet. In the back of my Jeep, I had like two red tails and a robin and a nest of bluebirds and a duck (laughs) and I, and they're all in crates covered so they can't see each other. But they're all back there and I had to deliver them all and then go pick my son up at guitar camp. And my daughter had given me her cell phone. Now she had one, but I didn't. So I'd never used a cell phone before. And this was a flip phone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but to me, it looked like someone had thrown it out of a spaceship. I mean, I, <laughs> I had no idea how to use this thing. And she's trying to show me. And so I take off in the car with all these birds and the cell phone because my agent was going to call me and tell me what was happening with the auction. And the coverage is really wonky around here because it's mountainy and woodsy. He kept saying, okay, now listen, this is really important. And then he'd say, wait a minute, do I hear quacking? (laughs) And then I'd say, yeah, yeah, I've just got birds in the back. And he'd say, this is really important. So listen, and then (laughs) off it would go, no coverage. Uh And I wouldn't know how to get it back because I didn't know how to work the cell phone. Oh, man. <laughs> but it all worked out. And they had this major auction and HarperCollins won it. Wow. Yay. It was really cool. So that was, that was the story with Flyaway. And then I just wrote a novel. And the story was totally different for that. So can we give a little background on the book yes. before we talk about it? So this is a story of a 25-year-old Luna Burke who's on the run with a homicidal bald eagle in the backseat. She's licensed to take care of injured and orphaned wildlife, and she is determined to smuggle the bird from her husband's private zoo in Florida to an eagle sanctuary in Canada. It legit sounds like Joe Exotic now. Oh, no. Doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) When we say it, like, when you read it like that, I'm like, oh, my God, it's the Joe Exotic of birds. (laughs) No, it's not. No, no, no. (laughs) Disclaimer, no. You were first. Don't worry. You were first. But honestly, <laughs> side note, I had friends watch it and they were like, you should watch this. You love animals. Like uh, I got 10 minutes in and I was like, I can't watch this nightmare. Isn't it horrible? It's absolutely it's, terrible. Yeah. It's horrible. horrible. All of them all are of horrible. Them. Yeah. And all of them are horrible. All yep. of them. And it, yeah. And it was just like, oh my God, how did anyone think I could make it yeah. through this? And like, like 10 minutes in, I was like, I was already crying. I was like, I'm out. I'm so out. So awful. Yeah. And it couldn't be further from what real rehabbers do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. 
So she she is escaping with a homicidal bald eagle and hot on her trail are her husband, his bodyguards, the police, state conservation officials, and an expert tracker from the Federal Fish and Wildlife Service. So this is essentially the exciting journey of a rehabber on the run. So why did you write this? What sounds like a really, really exciting story. It, it's supposed to be an exciting story, and I think it is. It's got, you know, fast cars, and it's got guns, and it's got everything. That was probably inspired by the Peregrine Falcon <laughs> journey. <laughs> the big machine guns made an impression yeah. on me. <laughs> First of all, I have never been on the run with a bald eagle, so <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> I <Don't> you know. <laughs> I have not been wanted by the federal authorities as of yet. <laughs> what happened was I was working on another project that was not going well. And I was just wishing I was not writing this thing. And one day I was talking to my agent, Russ, who had sold Flyaway. You know, I was bitching and moaning about this other project. And then I just said, listen, I've got a really funny rehabber story for you. And I told him this funny story about an owl and... And he just laughed and he said, you know, if I were a movie producer, I would be all over that. Why don't you write that as a novel? And I said, because I don't know how to write a novel. And he goes, oh, just read Carl Hyacin. Carl Hyacin is a writer. He's, he's based in Florida. He, he was a journalist. So he writes these very comic satire murder mystery novels about all the weird people in Florida all the kind of creepy underbelly of Florida. They're really funny. They're fast paced. They've got lots of characters in them. And this seemed like a good template, not the murder mystery part, but I just, I wanted that tone so that, that people who were not bird nerds, people who were not into the environment could still pick it up and think, oh, wow, this sounds fun. And the wildlife is sort of like the added bonus. I wrote it with that in mind. It wasn't as simple as I make it sound because <laughs> I didn't know how to write a novel. So I wrote four drafts and each time I would send it to Russ, who put a lot of work into this. So the backbone of the story of getting the eagle from Key West to Ontario, you know, reuniting the bird with its mate and getting him to Ontario and using an underground railroad of wildlife rehabbers that stayed. Now that part stayed. By the time I got to the last draft, I thought, you know, I'm just going to write this story. I'm going to stop trying to please everybody. And I'm just going to write it. And I sent it to him and I thought he's going to hate this. And he loved it. I was, um, I was reading some of the reviews on Goodreads. And it's so funny because I do think it's like a hard book to just simply categorize. Like all the people who are writing reviews are like, I normally <laughs> read romance, but I was surprised how much I really like this thriller mystery. And then the people are like, I normally read mystery thrillers. I was surprised how much I like this romance. And I was like, no one knows what it is, but everyone seems to really enjoy it because it does touch on a lot of different genres that I think people yeah. uh, who maybe might not expect to read a certain like quote unquote genre still enjoy reading it, which is great. And that is actually why I had to self-publish it because oh. I gave it to Russ and he sent it around to these editors thinking that there would be another feeding frenzy like fly away that everyone would just love this book and marketing. It's so, you know, book sales these days, it's all about marketing. So he sent it to the, the editors and they have to talk to the marketing department 
And these are New York City people who are saying, well, what's a rehabber? What, you know, what, what is this? And then they'd say, but, but what genre is it? I don't know, you know, how will someone find this on Amazon? And then they said, you know, get me a successful book that this book is just like. You put it into Amazon. If you liked fill in the blank, then you'll like Unflappable. And not only was there no successful book like it, there was no book like it. They just couldn't find one like it. And you would think that would be a good thing. But no, if it hasn't been done a million times, they don't want to hear about it. Well, thank you for not rewriting Twilight. <laughs> the world oh, thanks you're you. you're so welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So uh, you, these were all big publishers. And the, my choice was to either, Russ was going to make a whole new list of smaller publishers who wouldn't give me so much money and might want me to rewrite a whole bunch of it or do it myself. And I just figured, oh, hell with it. You know, I'm sick of listening to people telling me what I should be doing. So I just decided to self-publish it. That's awesome. I know the rehabbing and the bird obviously is like a huge part of it. We were curious, what made you select the bald eagle <laughs> to be Luna's bird companion on the adventure? Like, what was it about the bald eagle? Because it sounded like that was from all the four drafts. That was sort of, was that always the bird? Yep. Gotta know why. The big secret is revealed. <laughs> you know, as I say, I wanted this book to be a book that anyone could read. I was hoping mm -hmm. if it went mainstream, that it would raise awareness, not only what rehabbers do, but how cool wildlife is, you know, how cool it is. People who don't care about the woods or care about wildlife could see it and go, wow. And so I wanted a bird that was instantly recognizable to everybody. Anybody would know what a bald eagle was. If I made it, you know, Luna Burke is on the run with a roseate spoonbill. Just doesn't have the same kind <laughs> of, you know, people would be scratching their head and going, what? A bald eagle is sort of emblematic of the country. And this whole thing of Luna taking off with this bald eagle spirals because she's married to such a wealthy guy and so many people are chasing her and the media gets in on, in on it. You know, it becomes the symbol of America and that gets tossed around. And also the bird itself, his name is Mars and he's a male bald eagle and he has been separated from his mate who is in Pennsylvania. His backstory is he was stolen from the nest, which happens, and raised by a guy who treated him badly. And so the bird is really aggressive. With a raptor, if they're imprinted, they're either going to try and mate with you or kill you sooner or later, one or the other. So this is a really wow. big homicidal raptor. And it turns out that Ned, who is Luna's getaway driver, her sort of sidekick is a young tech guy who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But knows how to use a flip phone. Yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does. Important. That's why I put a tech guy in there. Yeah. So um, it turns out, you know, he keeps trying to sort of get out of this crazy, epic road trip that he's on, but he can't get away. And it turns out that he's carting this homicidal bald eagle around, and he's afraid of birds. Oh, bad bird to be stuck with if you're afraid of birds. <laughs> Especially in a car. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, that's cool. That does make a lot of sense with the bald eagle. I mean, I think that most birders know if you're trying to get people into birds, like show them a bald eagle and everyone's like, oh my God, that's so cool. <gasps> But there are enough birds in there. I mean, this is the thing is they go from rehabber to rehabber because I'm writing this book as a rehabber. And so I know that 
you can't have a bird in a crate for more than like five hours. Mm. That's just not healthy for the bird. You've got to keep stopping and you can't just like leave him in the crate or throw him in a bathroom or something. You know, you need a flight cage so that he can stretch his wings so he can get his blood going. So every place they stop is a rehabber's place. And each rehabber does a different species. This is like incidental learning. So you can learn just from the story what it takes to rehab that species and all these cool little factoids about that species. Like they stop at the bear rehabber. How the heck do you rehab a black bear that weighs 600 pounds? I mean, how do you do that? And you can read about it. It's in the story and it's, it's like not bullet points of how to do it. It's not like a manual at the same time. It's a novel. <laughs> That'd be a scary book, actually. Right. That would be hard to genre, I would say. Another strike against it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Avoid bullet point number six. So you mentioned in this book, the community of wildlife rehabbers. Does this kind of relate to real life too? Can you tell us about the community of rehabbers in the real world? There is quite a community of rehabbers. Um, We are all linked by the internet. Thank goodness for the internet. I've been doing this for 30 years, but even back then, there are listservs and people have each other's emails and people do tend to specialize. So for instance, the first time I, I started getting wading birds or shorebirds in, someone brought me a great blue heron and I had never rehabbed a great blue heron before. And I'm in a panic. What do I do? So I called Avian Haven in Maine. You talk to the people who are the authority on these different species. But also there's a whole kind of feeling of solidarity when you are on the same listserv or you're the same Facebook page or Facebook friends. Because rehabbing is, it's really hard. It's really heartbreaking. Yeah. It's never ending. It's not glamorous. You don't get a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I mean- You don't get big, long, exotic vacations. You know, people are always kind of falling apart and leaning on each other. You know, it's really nice. It's a nice community. I was going to say, I actually had a, I thought it was a funny rehabber story. So I found a squirrel. Unfortunately, I'll ruin it. It passed away from a bot fly infection. So I have the squirrel. I go on the DNR list. I call all these people and I call one person and, you know, I get a voicemail that she only does big mammals. So I hang up. She calls me back. She goes, I'm driving right now. You know, what do you have? And I was like, I have a squirrel, but I heard your voicemail. And she goes, oh, well, let me pull over. She goes, you know, some people aren't listed on the DNR website. So I'm going to give you like the the lowdown of who you can call off the list to get this squirrel. And I'm like, there is like an <laughs> underground rehabber world. Like what is going on? <laughs> I know. So, so she gives me these Facebook pages and these numbers. And, if I, you know, finally someone on Facebook I get a hold of. Nicest lady. I, I bring the squirrel. She updates me, you know, passed away in its sleep. But now I'm like, I have all these connections now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> The best part about that, too, is Sarah paid this woman via Venmo. And I... <laughs> I'm like not hip on the the unspoken rule of Venmo is like, you don't really comment on other people's transactions. But Sarah had paid this woman and all the comments said was like, thanks for taking care of that squirrel. And so I commented and I was like, 
I have so many questions about this payment. <laughs> and the lady writes back and she's like, what kind of questions do you have? And like Sarah and I had never talked about the squirrel story. So like I literally knew nothing. So I was like, what happened to the squirrel? What is the squirrel okay? Like I just like. <laughs> and instead of calling me her friend, she has this conversation with this rehab stranger. Yeah. And I felt terrible because I was like, oh God, like <laughs> this lady thinks I'm insane. My friends are insane. What are you doing with this squirrel, lady? Yes, that's right. And normally the rehabber would say, wait, you didn't give her my phone number, did you? Yeah, right, exactly. We entered our own circle of weird wildlife underground stories, I guess. <laughs> See, you've got firsthand information here. <laughs> Uh, I know that you mentioned, obviously, you, you have not been chased by the, you know, Fish and Wildlife Service and all these things. But were there any parts of Unflappable that were based on real life rehab stories? The story is fiction, even though even if you have a you know bird that was born in captivity, that's a that's a big trip. Florida to Canada. That's that's fiction. Yeah. But the real life part was really more the the setups and what people do, the research that goes into this and the kind of, you know, hospitals and caging and, you know, that makes it sound sort of cut and dried, but every place you go, you know, there's, there's a, a different way that people kind of do things. And that's all real. And the fish and wildlife tracker who is after Luna, he does things by the book and he really believes in what he's doing. And he thinks of her as this woman who has stolen a bald eagle. Mm. She didn't really steal him. Her husband stole him, and then she stole him back. Fair's fair. That's right. One good steal deserves another. So he's looking at it from the law and order point of view. And actually, you know, these laws are in place to protect the birds. So he believes that he's doing the right thing by trying to just get this bird back. But the whole community of rehabbers thinks that he's the enemy because he's trying to track her down. It's a whole thing for him because these are people who should sort of appreciate what he's doing, but they think of him as the enemy. One of the characters in there says, this whole thing is a moral minefield. And it is. You know, nothing's black and white. It's all gray. So from this book, what are some misunderstandings about wildlife rehab you hope to help correct? If people know about wildlife rehabbers, they think that we have quite a lot more time and money and staff than we do. I mean, so many times we get calls from people who say, uh, yes, I, I have this bird and, and I'm, you know, I'm really busy. He's been in the bathroom for two days and I thought he'd get better, but he's looking kind of rickety and, and can you come and get him? And they, they, you know, they don't understand. You've got you've to call someone right away. We're not magicians. And these aren't our pets. They have the Snow White vision where all the birdies are circling our heads and helping us do the laundry. And it would be nice, but you know. I would like that. <laughs> well, it is funny you say that because I often called the, it wasn't really a rehab in Chicago, but it was like a network of people who volunteered. Huh. But it was, again, it was like all yes. volunteers. And that's the only reason it worked. I mean, Chicago's huge. There are so many yeah. birds that are subject to hitting windows or any other cats, oh. you know? <laughs> I can't imagine if someone, if that was their job to do that and not have that support network. I mean, that would just, it wouldn't work. So yeah. I can't even imagine being a rehabber and not having those kinds of two hands resources and somebody else to just pitch in every once in a while. Yeah, that would be way tough. Rehabber burnout is really common. 
I mean, especially after the summer, by August, everybody is totally fried mm -hmm. because people are out. You know, there's babies and there's lots of lots of injuries that go on. So by the end of the summer. Yeah. You know. Maybe sort of thinking along those lines. Do you think that this book will help raise public awareness about how humans and wildlife can coexist in terms of rehabilitation and everything? I hope so. I, I hope it will open people's eyes and that you know, wildlife are really cool. Instead of thinking of them as a nuisance or being afraid of them, or I don't want to deal with them, or, you know, I just moved here from the city and I don't want these animals on my pristine lawn, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And there are cool, quirky people who are involved with wildlife and there's lots of need. I hope the book is fast paced enough and funny enough. And there's all kinds of stuff going on. It's not just wildlife. I'm hoping that a wider audience will appreciate it. We can try to lure them in from the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, is there anything that we didn't discuss you wanted to share? I know you said you had a really good bird story, but was it the peregrine or was it another one of your countless stories about birds that you wanted to share? I think it was the one about the flicker. Oh, yeah. The flicker. Okay. <laughs> Before I was a rehabber, I would see birds around and I'd appreciate them. But when I became a rehabber, it was like everywhere I looked, there was an injured bird. I would go out in the woods and I'd, I'd look at one and I'd think, oh, is that wind dragging? <laughs> you know, I'd just, I'd always be looking for something. But anyway, this one day, my kids were both at school and I had a half an hour where I could just do whatever I wanted to do. And that was so rare. Because between the kids and the birds and the house and the, you know, so I had a half hour and running in the woods was a real stress buster. So I'd take my giant dog and we'd go for this nice run and, oh, what a relief. I was all set to go and I crossed the field and I was about to go into the woods and a yellow shafted flicker fell on my head. <laughs> what? Oh my God. Literally fell on my head and bounced off my shoulder and then hit the ground. And she started sort of scuttling away. My reaction is I reached down and grabbed her and she had a broken wing. Oh. And I thought, I have a half an hour to myself <laughs> and they are falling on my head. <laughs> you know, I just could not believe this. But she was so beautiful. She was such a beautiful bird. And luckily, it was a clean break. We, I took her to the vet, x-rayed, said it. I released her. But I didn't get that run. Nope. <laughs> nope. That took way more than a half hour, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was okay. Because, you know, I got to see this cool flicker up, up close. So Yeah. I volunteered at the Washtenaw Bird Rehab Center. And they, you know, they mostly take in songbirds. Like, that's what they mostly do. It's such a small building. They, like, had an old postal office donated to them. So it's, like, one room. And then you've got tables of, like, butterfly cages with just birds in them. Just all oh, these birds. Right. But every year, of course, they'd get ducklings. And I could not stop <laughs> myself from talking to them. And everyone was like, do not talk to the ducks. They imprint easily. But, like, you're just so cute and tiny that you're just, like... It was like a dog. I was like, I want to talk to this puppy. And I just felt terrible because every time I was like, okay, now we're going to pick you up. And then I'm like, I can't talk to you, but you're so cute. You are so cute. <laughs> that would take way too much restraint to not talk to dogs. I know. They're so cute. It's yep. so hard. They are really cute. You know, did you have people going, stop it, stop it, 
dunk, dunk, dunk the ducks. They had like um, <laughs> interns who were like actually people who were training to be vets or who were working in environmental. And I was just a volunteer. And so most of my job was like setting in the food, cleaning cages, you know, helping, helping them feed animals sometimes. But yeah, every time I had to like mentally be like, do not talk, Sarah. Do not tell them how cute they are. And I remind them how adorable they are. It was hard. It was hard. They know. They know. That's they were probably appearing extra cute just to. I know. Cute. I was like, every time I had to clean their little cage, I was like, damn it, you're too cute. Yeah. <laughs> Even your little poops are cute. No, they're po- they poops so much. Like that's a th- like rehabbing. That's what I was like. Rehabbing is not glorious. It is so much poop. Oh yeah, you're covered with it. You're just covered with it. Well, you're on the right podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a quick bird poop story for you. I had a red tail in one of my flight cages and I was in the flight cage and the, the red tail flew by me and nailed me right down my back. Oh. Like nailed me with the poop down the back. And I went, ah, shit, as usual. Mm-hmm. And I had all this other stuff to do and I forgot about it. And then I had to go to food town to go shopping. I never even looked in the mirror back then. I just, you know, just, mm-hmm. I, I put on my like rubber boots and go to food town. And I was in an aisle and a friend of mine came up behind me and she said, do you ever look in the mirror before you leave the house? <laughs> and I was like, I, and I said, yes, I do. Look, there is nothing on me. And she goes, turn around. <laughs> and I had this big thing down the back. All, at least it was dry. Yeah, true. But then, you know, I'm in the middle of this like food store and I know everybody's looking at me. Ugh. <laughs> That is hilarious. There goes that poop lady again. Yep, there she goes. <laughs> Not as bad as your guest who had like 500 snow geese oh, right. poop on her. Yeah, we should have like an annual award that we give out to people who <laughs> have like the most shit in their story yes. or something. That's what we need to do. There we go. Well, Susie, we loved talking yes. to you, not only about Unflappable, your new book, but also about all your incredible stories from the past and, you know, sort of the present too. I mean, with everything that's been happening with the book as well. So thank you so much. We really loved having you on. It was such a pleasure to be on. It was so good to talk to you guys. I was looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Oh my God, Mo, that was so much fun. Now I want, I just want a million rehab stories. Send us all your rehab stories too. I think you're just going to convert your house to a rehab center. Dude, I honestly, I already told Jake, I was like, can we build a flag cage when we get a house? And he was like, no, (laughs) absolutely not. Which means maybe. Yeah, it means it's going to happen anyways. Like, yeah, I I remember I looked into rehabbing like a couple years ago and then I was like, I don't have time. But then I was like, as soon as I retire, this is my life. Yep. I felt so inspired on so many different levels when she was talking. I love she just has this attitude of like, no one told me how to do it, so I just went out and I did it. <laughs> I know, Susie is so cool. I admire her for all of that. Plus, being a rehabber is really hard. And, you know, if you don't have an organization to donate to locally that you are fond of, find a local rehabber. They could always use, like, either supplies or money. Like, especially now that it's spring, summertime, they're always super loaded. Yeah, and especially with everything that's happening with all these laws getting revoked and everything. Let's not end this up. All right, all right. Yeah, we're not, we're not. We're not going there. Yeah, we're not ending this one. 
No. This is a this happy is, episode. This is a happy episode with a happy ending. If you want to purchase one of Susie's books, whether her new book, Unflappable, which is a fictional novel, which book that we primarily talked about on the episode, or even her memoir or her children's book, we will have a link in the podcast notes where you can go to purchase any of those. I also did see, and I hope this is still the case, but you can read the first chapter for free on her website of Unflappable. Yes, I did. I read it. Yeah. Yeah, I was hooked. I will be purchasing her book. It seems like a good summer read is what I will say. Ooh, all right. Yeah, I mean, it has a little bit of like mystery, a little bit of thriller, a little bit of romance. Romance. A little bit of birds. A lot of birds. So what's not to love? I mean, it's kind of like one of our episodes. We've got a lot of romance. Between us. Between us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We talk about birds. There's some mystery of like, what the fuck are they going to say next? Nobody knows. <laughs> The thrill of the mystery is really <laughs> thrill. No, Susie's book way better than our than our podcast. So you should go out and read it. You should go buy it. We really enjoyed talking with Susie. And if you would like to talk to us, you can send us an email at hellobirdsha at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on our Instagram at birdshitpodcast. Or our Twitter, which is at birdshitpod. At birdshitpod. I was trying to give Mo a little chance to talk, you know, since she's feeling better. I didn't totally just blink on all of our social media. It's fine. It's all good. You did great. I appreciate being included. Thank you. Thank you. Until then, Sarah, what are you going to do? I'm going to keep my ass to the skies, baby. I like it. (laughs)